Um, so this morning, we are doing the second one of our jump forwards into, into Matthew 26. Uh, and we're, we're looking at the story or the account of Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And I don't know how you read this passage. Um, and I've, I've, I must confess that I, I tend to read it, I think, in the past, the more I've thought about it over the last couple of weeks when I've been preparing, as a kind of transition period. Jesus has done his teaching. We've already had some, um, you know, he, he's been pro- talk, talking to his disciples about the end is near for me. Um, and then he has this very intimate uh, meal with his disciples, but you're almost just, you know what's coming down the line. The trial and the lies and the deceit and the crucifixion and the resurrection. But the more and more I thought about this, and we, we touched on it a couple of weeks ago when we actually broke bread together, um, this passage is absolutely dynamite. What Jesus said is incredible. And so I wanted to try and approach that, uh, the passage, it, with that expectation. But also, unashamedly, and this is going to be really hard, I'd like us to try and focus on Jesus as a human being, as a person, to focus on his humanity in this passage and think about what he must have been going through and thinking about on that occasion. And then we're going to draw out some, uh, some of the things he said, two themes in particular I wanted to touch on this morning. So we think about Jesus. He's organized for his disciples to go and check out uh, the place where he's already uh, kind of set up the Passover meal. Um, it's full of domestic detail. You get this intimate picture of Jesus with his disciples. It's beautifully written. It's moving. It's sad. And it's incredibly powerful all at the same time. So let's just read Matthew 26, verse. First day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, I appointed time is Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after another, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it's you. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, 
Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, or the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I want us to try and look at a couple of things, pretending we're watching a film. Okay. Now, I tried to search for a film that we might all know that had this particular way of presenting, but I couldn't. Um, and I think it's always slightly dodgy recommending films to a, a big audience in case people either don't like them or they're not their favorite. But do you know that trick? that some directors use when they're telling a story, you have to go back in time in history to understand the context of what's happening in the present. Or there's something about to happen that is really important, but it makes much, much more sense if you understand the backstory that's gone on before. So I want us to try, if we can, and I'll, I'll try and get this right if I can, I, I want us to be in the past some of the time and in the present, as in where Jesus is at that particular moment. And next slide, please. Jesus was very aware. I want to make three points, of course. First one says, Jesus was very aware of the significance of the moment. Next slide, please, Nikki. And it's this. We read in 2617 that this is, here's a bit of, a bit of music going on in the background there, so don't worry. It's this, and I've highlighted it there in orange. It's Passover. We read it. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he's celebrating the Passover meal. So I just wonder whether at that moment in time or during that evening, and I'm sure this is probably true, that Jesus started thinking about what happened in Exodus. He knew his Bible, he knew Scripture, and he started wondering. So you just go back, just picture Jesus now, however you can, and we're going back in time. We're, we're, we're entering his mind and he's thinking, where did this Passover story come from? Now many of you might know this, but some of you might not. But if you want to read it, you read the first 12 chapters of the second book of And very, very briefly, and in summary, um, in Exodus chapter 1, we find Israel, that's the people of God, God's chosen people, in Egypt. And they'd been in there for a few years, because many years earlier, they moved there because of famine. And that's another story that uh, Jacob uh, was involved with, which I won't go into. Resist the temptation to fill in too much detail. But Israel were in Egypt, and while they were in Egypt, they grew increasingly powerful and rich and strong, to the point that the Egyptians started to worry about the power of this nation within their boundaries. And so they decided something had to be done about it, and they started uh, putting them into slavery. They forced them to do manual, menial tasks. They didn't give them food. Uh, they were trying to, I guess, uh, you know, 
put them under their feet, so they kept them in their place. And there was even occasion, and does this ring a bell anywhere else, that um, they tried to kill young males in the country. Remember the Christmas story? And so they were trying to make sure that Israel not only were slaves to the, uh, the Egyptians, but they had no means of growing in number as well. And we hear the story of Moses who was hidden and came to prominence with, uh, with Aaron. And in time, he was commissioned by God to go and speak to Pharaoh, to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. It's time you let them go to celebrate and worship me. And you'll probably be familiar with uh, uh, either now or in, in stories you heard at Sunday school that there was then a series of terrible plagues that afflicted Egypt and Pharaoh because he was stubborn and would not listen to God's instruction through Moses. And there were 10 of them in all, each getting kind of worse um, as they went on. And even though occasionally Pharaoh might have then said, oh, okay, I give in, it's up, you can go, he changed his mind at the last minute until we reach the 10th plague. And the 10th plague was truly awful. And it was the plague of the firstborn. So God was going to send an angel and he was going to kill the firstborn male in every household in Egypt because of Pharaoh's disobedience. And this is where our link lies. Israel was to prepare for this terrible night hundreds of years before Jesus sat in that upper room by doing two specific things. They were first of all to go and find a beautiful, perfect, spotless lamb. And they were to sacrifice it. And with a bunch of herbs, dip the herbs in the blood of the sacrificed lamb and daub it on the, the sides of the doors and the top of the door where they lived. And then they were to kill the lamb and eat the lamb, and they were to eat it in a way ready for pilgrimage. So they had to have their tunics on, they had to have their, their tunics tucked into their waist, and they had to eat it with their staff in the hand, because in the morning it was time to leave. And I just wondered... Jesus was perhaps thinking on what had happened in Exodus because as we come to what he was about to do, he was our Lamb of God. The blood of a lamb in Exodus without defect was sufficient to protect everybody in that house from the wrath of God. And in fact, all of the sacrifice in the prophetic tradition through the Old Testament was pointing towards one moment in time, one minute, one day in time, when all of that would be completely transformed. By what? By the coming of the Son of God, who would die once and for all, for all mankind. Jesus was fully aware of the significance of what was about to take place. He was facing the last few hours of his life. And as John the Baptist said, we just 
days. When John saw Jesus, this is what he said of Behold the what? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was associated in that tradition with God's sacrificial lamb, the lamb that was slaughtered hundreds of times across that night in, in Israel when they were in Egypt. He was the perfect spotless lamb. His perfection in the place of our sin and our ugliness. And he was perhaps just wondering on that, thinking about it, working it through. And you know, it doesn't say that, but it's the, the significance of the lamb slaughtered in Old Testament history and Jesus being the lamb of God is so important. Breaking bread. And you know, this is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And as I was preparing, I started just typing a whole load of things. It's quite, um, quite unlike me, really, um, because, you know, there are so many things that can get in the way. And I just started writing these things down. Do you know what? Do you know what Jesus' death can't be? It cannot, it cannot be changed. It is completely guaranteed for all time. It's not the subject of political rule or social context or in which generation you're born. It doesn't need to be rebooted in the face of artificial intelligence. You're getting the message? It can't be forged. It can't be copied. It can't be duplicated. It's not for sale or to be owned by any multinational company or rich oligarch or deluded, deranged world leader. You're getting the message? The patent belongs to our Heavenly Father, and he's not sharing it or selling it with anybody else, any other religion, self-help guru, or TikTok influencer. You're getting the It's not misinformation. It's the truth that stands forever. That is the Jesus that we praise this morning. That is the Jesus who we've invited into our lives. That is the Jesus who sacrificed himself to bring the truth of the Word of God in perfect timing to all humanity. And on that moment, the whole world changed. Isn't that great? Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Well, I thought it was incredible. If I was a better rapper, I would have rapped it. In fact, I mean, <laughs> I mean rap, not as in, you know, paper and sellotape. I'm quite a good rapper, uh, but not, not the one. That, yeah, not a chance, no. <laughs> But I tell you what, it's easy because as I was in worship this morning, I thought, do you know what? All of those things are interesting, but they could also be seen as they're, they're lies. All of those things are lies. Our cultural context, there's no such thing as fundamental truth. It's all about our experience. Jesus' sacrifice as the perfect Lamb of God is the thing that separates out God's spoken truth word into humanity, and it's never going to change. The word of God stands forever. Secondly, uh, next slide, please, uh, Nikki. He chose, oh, that way, and the next one, beg your pardon. Jesus also chose his words very carefully. Um, just 
click up the next slide, I'll see whether, yeah, there we go. And that's the word covenant. In the same way, the death of Jesus was perfect in fulfilling everything in the Old Testament. Um, he also may have been thinking about this word as well. And I think I'm on slightly safer ground here because when he breaks bread with his disciples, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Now, I'd love us to do a mini-series on covenants, and you'll have seen on Mike's slide around Thrive, there is a session on covenant. Uh, it is absolutely incredible as a concept. When we begin to understand that God hasn't just invited us into a set of rules and regulations that we'll be judged by and marked on, he's invited us into a relationship to which he is 100% committed. Do you know, God loves you 100%. He's committed to you 100%. He sent his son as a token of that covenant so it can never be broken, never be changed. It's always going to be good enough. It's never too small. It's always going to be big enough. His covenant love for you stands for all time and forever. And as you sit here this morning with every situation that you're facing and where you know, challenging situations right now, his covenant love completely secure. Do you know that? His commitment to you is unequivocal. It cannot be moved. Nobody can take that away from you. That's the truth in which we stand and we sit here today. And as I said, I'd love to do a mini-series, but through the Old Testament, if you just grab the next slide, Nikki, please. There are various covenants in the Old Testament, um, <clears throat> and I won't go into them all, excuse me, <clears throat> but some of them are more significant than others, and they build towards the coming of Jesus. Covenant as a theme in the Old Testament is one of the themes that reveals the heart of God almost more than any other. And where each covenant has a different element. First of all, Noah, God covenanted with mankind not to destroy them again. With Abraham, he covenanted with Abraham to develop a nation and a blessing for the people of God. He enforced that blessing. He reinforced that blessing. Quick change of microphone. But also, there was an element of uh, the way in which he, his people needed to respond in obedience to what God had for them. And the covenant with David points towards kingship and the glorious kingship of Jesus Christ. And in Jeremiah, there is the most uh, perfect pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. And when was he going to do that? He was going to do it the day after the Passover. Next slide, please, Nikki. It says this. This is from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, a passage that will be well known to many people. And remember, this is hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. And God speaks through Jeremiah and he says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It won't be like the uh, covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, to one another know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Next slide, please, Nikki. Jesus says here, in, uh, I think it's 28, isn't it? This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. We live in the glorious light of his sacrifice and the new covenant, sealed by allowing himself to be crucified. And in the same way, the lamb, the blood of those lambs was shed. The blood of Jesus flowed from his veins on the cross to seal that covenant with us. Abba Father has promised all these things. He's made them at the heart and soul of our relationship with him. And he is contracted to provide all of these things to the one he loves. I just wonder, you know, as Jesus sat there, now not in his humanity, he was thinking about you and me. He wasn't just thinking about what he was about to go through. He was thinking about you and me. Isn't that amazing? He was doing it for you and me. And God knows us all. So what is the benefit of this covenant? Next slide, please, Nikki. There's lots. And if you want to read the book of Hebrews, it's a great commentary on all of this few, all of these few verses in uh, Matthew 26. But Paul mentions four things here in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 to 18. So being in covenant sounds like a bit of a legal term but I want us not to think it's a word that only a few people understand. Being in covenant really just means being in relationship with Jesus. And what does that mean for us? It means that we've been made clean and we've been made free. And we've had full salvation. We have the gift of the spirit of life and we have the power to be able to become more and more like Jesus himself. God has bound himself to us in his covenant love and it cannot be changed. So lastly, thirdly, Jesus is not just aware of the moment in time, not just aware of the significance of what he was saying. He was very aware of what was coming next. So let's finally go back to the upper room. Jesus was not only literally carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He had re received his terminal diagnosis, actually. He knew from his heavenly father he was about to die. But I wonder what was going through the minds of the other people in the room. As we say, this is a domestic setting. Jesus was having a meal with his 12 disciples. It may have been that there was a bit of concern and confusion about what Jesus had been telling them at the start of the chapter, which Mike touched on. Perhaps some of them thought it wouldn't quite end up like that because Jesus had a bit of a habit of getting himself out of situations that were rather tricky. 
Perhaps they thought, well, he's saying this, but it might just be something else. It might not be quite what he's actually saying. Perhaps they were engaging in the Passover meal. How many, just show of hands, how many people have actually had a Passover meal before? Here's a few. Um, <clears throat> if you get an opportunity to do it at least once, let me recommend you that recommend it to you. It, it just opens your understanding about what the Jews went through, but also the importance of Jesus' fulfillment of it. But what you'll also know is, well, apart from getting horseradish up your nose, which was a bit of a shock when I, probably the first time I'd eaten raw horseradish, nearly a trip to a &E. um, no stream for three days afterwards, but um, because there's a whole load of significance about the lamb, the blood, the bitter herbs, the staff, the horseradish, etc. Um, and understanding the context is the absolute moment in time in the upper room that we're looking at now. Some of them, disciples, might have still been a bit grumpy with James and John because of their mother asking that they could sit on Jesus' right hand and left hand. Might have been a bit of history. But I might be wrong, but I suspect that there's only one other person in the room other than Jesus who had anywhere near the same clarity about what was coming next. And that was Judas. He was completely fixated on his 30 pieces of silver and the way in which he could manufacture a way of betraying Jesus to the authorities. And despite knowing all of these things, Jesus allowed him to stay in what would have been the most intimate meal that he would have ever eaten. Do you know what that's called? That's called grace. Perhaps there's something else that might have been going on as well. Jesus might not have just been reflecting on the past, but he might have been reflecting on the future as well. Because he knew what he was about to do. And he knew what the impact was going to be. He knew it was going to be life for all. He knew it was going to be world-changing, the most significant world-changing event. He could see into the future the reward for his heavenly father of his obedience to death. He knew that he would be raised again because he told his disciples that. He had a sense of what was happening, so mixed in, mingled with all of the things that he was faced with, the challenge, he could see the prize set before him. He knew what was going to happen, both in the next few days, but he knew what was going to happen in eternity as well. Jenny, could the band come up? <clears throat> We're just going to worship for a couple of minutes. We, we are not breaking bread this morning, which would have been kind of logical to do. But it felt it was just time to reflect on the truth of what was going on and come to him in thanksgiving and worship. You know, when we break bread together, we do it in all sorts of different ways, don't we? We do it with a, sometimes with a sense of celebration, sometimes a bit of self-assessment about where we are 
whether we're harboring things against people that we shouldn't be and we need to sort out. But repentance, mending broken relationships, making peace, walking alongside those in need, giving thanks, proclaiming, worshipping. It's a very flexible meal because it allows us to do so many different things. And yet, at its heart, is that it's simple and profound. Let's just stand together, shall we say. And as we worship, can I just encourage you to just keep Jesus in your mind's eye. A picture of him with his disciples in that upper room. Faced with what he knew he was facing and yet still full of grace and truth. Let's just pour our hearts out to him in worship. We'll read more about what he went through, the injustice, the suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But let's just picture him, yes, as our Lord and Saviour, but also as the most perfect man. the person that we aspire to be like. Excellent in everything. Humble and yet powerful. <laughs>